Before we begin the message, I just feel that it's a good time to take a moment to pray. Um, you, we mentioned, I mentioned in Sunday school briefly, but um, if you watched any of the world news in the last week, uh, it seems not good, right? That there's, are, might even some are saying close to World War III with all the things going on. But as we learned in Sunday school this morning in the book of Job, God is in control. He does have an end in sight for his glory and for the good of those who love him. So let's take a moment to pray, uh, not only that the Lord would help us to receive the word that he has for us from the sermon this morning, but also that he would give us peace in our hearts about what's going on in the world, and also that uh, we would see his glory manifest in the world uh, through these events. Lord, thank you for our privilege to come before you, that Jesus cleared the way for us to approach the Father in his name with our pleadings and with our requests. And Lord, many of us are very concerned. We see many evils in our world. We see wars. We see immorality. We see abuse of children and um, people who can't defend themselves in the form of human slavery. And Lord, from the perspective of man, the world may be spiraling down. But you have a plan, God. And you are going to be glorified through it all. Lord, I pray that each one here would have their confidence renewed in the fact, the fact that you have a plan. And you will display your righteousness and justice on this earth. And that in the end, we will all glorify you and realize that in your holiness you have done what is right that you will punish your enemies let us trust in that and that you will be gracious even to those who love you and let us be confident of that now as we look to the gospel of luke and the miracle that jesus did may you further encourage our faith that you are the god who but needs to speak, and the world must obey. In Jesus' name, amen. So we find ourselves continuing in chapter 7 of Luke. We did the first 10 verses last week, uh, and we're going to go through 11 to 17 this morning, which says, Soon afterward he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples in a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I have a, a big idea this morning and some Notes that I took that I'll share with you. The big idea from this passage, the thing that I was hoping the most we would remember as we leave this morning, is that Jesus has compassion and the power of his words bring life. 
And I saw some pairings of, you often see this in Scripture, uh, we often don't uh, think about the great and wonderful uh, structure that the writers of Scripture have. Um, and so I want to take a moment to recognize that Luke, being a historian who gave us a great historic account, also wrote things in a way that was very poetic, if you want to put it that way, or well-structured literature as well. And so we see some groupings of two things here, two processions, a procession of life and a procession of death, two commands, do not weep and arise, and two responses, fear and glory. So we're coming off of what happened in last week's passage, which was the centurion's servant. Uh, You'll remember that Jesus marveled at the faith and the logic of the guy's faith, the centurion, who was a uh, person in charge of a hundred or so uh, soldiers, a Roman. And uh, he sent ahead of him uh, to Jesus uh, some Jewish rabbis or elders of the uh, people of the Jews and asked Jesus to come and heal his servant that he cared deeply about. And Jesus began to come with them, and then uh, as he was going, the centurion sent another messenger up, and he said, I'm not even worthy for you to come near my house. Just say the word. Then my servant must be healed, which was amazing. Here's a a Gentile, a person who didn't grow up uh, knowing about the Um, the covenants of the Jews, but he had this idea, this understanding that Jesus' words themselves had power, that Jesus could make a command and the command must be obeyed. And so he knew somehow that Jesus didn't need to be in proximity to heal. He could speak the word and from a distance there would be healing and that did happen. And so we saw that last week and if you want to If you missed that, you can go back on the website and listen to that later. But uh, from there then, we see where they're coming next. Um, So Jesus' disciples in last week's story, they had already seen a great demonstration of the power of Jesus' words. And as if to reinforce the lesson about the power of Jesus' words, now Luke puts this story next. And so he begins immediately after that story. I'll go back to uh, verses 11 and 12, soon afterward, that's after he healed the centurion's servant, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. So, as we know throughout Jesus' ministry, uh, many people came along and followed behind and wanted to see what was going on, and I'll talk about that more in a moment. And then as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. So here we see these two processions, a procession of life and a procession of death. The procession of life is clear. All these people that are following Jesus, they, they might have realized without really being able to articulate it like Peter did, but you have the words of life, uh, and so they're following Jesus. They've probably heard or at least witnessed some of his miracles. They've heard his teachings. They're interested in what he's saying. They're following along. And this is a, a group that probably is coming with much joy and excitement, talking about as they're walking along, did you hear this, what Jesus said? Did you, were you there when he did this? And, and you can just imagine how things were there. And then you see this procession of death. And so that's the mother coming out with her son that's died 
and we'll talk about that too. So Jesus' followers, they're following who? The Prince of Life. Many were true believers. Um, Some may have just been seekers. They're not quite sure yet, but they're willing to keep following a little bit to see what happens. And, And then there's probably others who are just enjoyed being part of something out of the ordinary or part of a group or part of current events. And this is the same thing that you'll see in most churches today. You have people who are sincere believers. They're, they're in their word. They're praying all the time. They live out the word of Christ in their life. They attend the church. They participate in the church. And they are certainly truly saved people. And then you may have people who are kind of like, well, I'm not quite sure I'm here, but uh, I'm not sure I'm a full believer yet, but I'm willing to keep going. And then there's people, frankly, that come to church and they just, they think it's part of a little community and that's, you know, they, they get to know some people and they, it's very superficial and that's, that's why they're here. And so we see the same thing as they're following Jesus. There's, there's different um, intensities of where people's faith is at from the extreme of uh, no faith probably, but just there for a good time and then all the way up to people who had truly believed that uh, Jesus was something special and significant and, and the Savior. So that's the joyous procession, the procession of life. And then the other procession, it's very sad. And sad for multiple reasons. Um, a widow that had only one son, uh, and he was probably the one that was her caretaker, because this was a very different society than we're in today. She couldn't go down to the Social Security office and say, my husband died, I need to start collecting some benefits. She couldn't go and uh, apply for food stamps. She couldn't do any of those things. She couldn't even probably go to um, a lot of people and ask them, for because most people were uh, somewhat poor in those days, and there weren't a lot of people with means to help other people out. And so you would hope that when you're a widow that your family would take care of you. And we see that in Scripture. We actually see some things in Acts that talk about it. Paul talks about taking care of widows being, uh, James says, taking care of widows and orphans is true religion. Why? Because those are the people who absolutely cannot take care of themselves. And that's a little different sometimes than the way we see um, people receiving benefits today. Sometimes they are people that could take care of themselves, but they're not. But this is a lady who, she, there weren't really jobs for women. They were the caretakers at home, but they needed someone to bring income into them. And so her son was probably doing that for her once her husband had died. Now she has no son. Now she's probably really not only mourning the son, but also really panicky and worried about where her life is going to lead her next because she may be a beggar on the street within a day or two. It's very likely. Um, so it's, it's sad, and not only that, other people probably empathized with that, which is why Scripture tells us there was a considerable crowd going along with her. Um, this is an indication. It wasn't just a handful of people. A big crowd was following her. They probably felt in the same way, like this is a lady who's in a really dire need. She's having a really awful time. She's lost her husband. Now she's lost her son. We just talked about Job in Sunday school, and it's not exactly the same, but we were talking about what that kind of loss might do. John Corson writes this, In Nain we see two groups of people, one going into the city rejoicing, the other leaving the city weeping. The group going into the city was rejoicing because they were traveling with Jesus. The group leaving the city was weeping, knowing nothing about Jesus. I suggest every single one of us is in one of these two crowds right now. 
Either we are traveling with Jesus to the city, or we are traveling without him to the cemetery. If we're traveling with him, to what city are we headed? To the same one for which Abraham looked, the city which is solid and real, satisfying and eternal, the city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Abraham knew such a city would not be found in Mesopotamia, Babylon, New York, or Oregon. He knew the city for which he longed would only be found in eternity, and thus he could head toward it rejoicing, end quote. That's a great way to put it. We're all in one of those two camps. We're either walking with Jesus towards the city, uh, we're headed towards eternal life, or we're headed towards death without Jesus, and that's a representation of eternal uh, death, which is continual dying. Eternal conscious torment is what's promised to the unbeliever who never puts faith in Christ. And then we see what happens next in verse 13 and 14. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the bier, and that just means coffin or like a sort of, almost like a, a stretcher, but more fortified than that, that they would carry a, a body out um, to the cemetery on. So think of your pallbearers here carrying a casket out. He touches it, and they stand still, and he says, Young man, I say to you, arise. So here we see in these two verses two commands from Jesus. The first command is to the mother, do not weep. And the second is to the dead man, arise. So do not weep. Now, we're not told by Luke the exact tone of this, but we can get an indication because he says that Jesus felt compassion towards her. So we can have an idea that he wasn't just sniping at her or saying, oh, come on, you big baby, quit weeping, or anything like that. But this was out of a heart of compassion that Jesus said, do not weep. And sometimes we do that when we, someone's crying. It makes us uncomfortable. Janelle said that in Sunday school earlier. We're uncomfortable around suffering. And so we might just be like, oh, don't cry. Please don't cry. That wasn't what Jesus was doing either. But I believe what he was doing was he was, he was giving a gentle command that was foreshadowing what he was about to do. He was compassionate towards her. R.C. Sproul said, if we had no other passage in all of Scripture that told us anything about Jesus except for this passage, these 10 verses, that it would tell us all we needed to know about Jesus' compassion. He sees this woman. He understands what she's going through, and he has compassion on her. And so he touches this, the beer, B-I-E-R, means, as I mentioned, a casket or a a platform to carry a corpse. Um, and that Jesus touched it is significant because touching that would make him unclean in, under the rules of the rabbis and all of that. But we see once again that as Jesus is responding to people's needs, he puts aside the worries about pleasing the, those who are keeping track of all the rules and stuff, and he gets right to the heart of the matter. He puts people before those legalisms. And so he touches it, and that's probably a gentle way of letting them know, hey, pause this, stop the train here, stop the procession. Um, And they stop. And then he speaks. 
Jesus speaks, and as we saw last week, his, his speaking, his words alone could declare a disease had to leave a body, that a body had to be made well. And now we see that Jesus' words as a command can cause life to come back into a person that's dead. Isn't that great? And that's what he's done for us, that he's saved. He's brought a dead person back to life, spiritually speaking. And we see this throughout Scripture, that there's power in the words of God, that he is the one that can make everything out of nothing. And when he speaks, his command must be obeyed, even by a dead man. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. How did God create the world? By his word. He spoke everything into existence. Romans 4.17, Paul wrote, As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed. He's talking about Abraham here. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. There's another example of the power of God. John 5.21 says, for, just, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And Abraham, he believed that God could bring back to life. In Hebrews 11.17, it's talking about how Abraham was told to go sacrifice Isaac. And we know it ended up where he didn't have to do that, but we know his faith was so strong that Hebrews eleven seventeen tells us that by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son. And it goes on to say that that's because he believed that God could raise him from the dead. And so we see Abraham's faith is commended again and again in Scripture that his salvation, his righteousness, was because of his faith. 1 Corinthians 1.28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God can speak things into existence. God can speak life into a dead body. And we see this in verse 15 where it says, the dead man sat up, and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. It's just like the centurion said about his servant last week's sermon. He said, if you speak, my, my servant will be healed, he must be healed. He must be. God's word must be obeyed. When God gives a decretive command like that, it must be obeyed. And then in verse 16, it says, fear seized them all. And they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Kent Hughes said this, that Jesus was much more than a great prophet, but ascribing such a title to him was the best the townspeople could do without further revelation. It was a spontaneous course of realization that messianic times had fallen on them. Their chorus, that God has come to help his people, is similar to what Zechariah had sung in the birth narratives. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, 
because he has come and he has redeemed his people. So Jesus had come in Elijah-like power except for one huge difference. Elijah had to stretch himself over the boy three times while crying out to God to help. But Jesus had only to speak the word. So he trumps Elijah. The people knew the stories like this of Elijah, and, and they knew that when someone came like Elijah again, that would be the Messiah. And yet Jesus is not like Elijah in that way. He didn't have to cry out to God. He didn't have to lay down on the body and breathe three times into its mouth. He spoke the word. He gave a command to the dead man. And I, I find that interesting, too, that uh, it says the dead man sat up and began to speak. Which, logically, I struggle with a little bit. How does that work? You know, he was dead, but he sat up. Was he still dead? But that's not the point Luke is trying to make. He's trying to say, look, here is life coming to this dead man. As Jesus spoke, he came to life and sat up. And by the way, I think if we look at the fear of the people there, uh, we like to think of ourselves as sophisticated, modern man, modern woman, and we would deal with this a little differently. We would be glorifying God. We wouldn't have the fear. But I have to say... I know some of you have really good faith. But if we were having a funeral in this church and there was a body laying here in the casket and everybody knew it had been embalmed and it was dead as a doornail, as Dickens said about Marley, and all of a sudden the body sat up, I am not, there's probably not one of you here that would not have some fear. We would probably rejoice afterwards, but for a moment we'd be like, what just happened? This is a, and this is back in those days is no different. Bodies didn't come back to life. Resurrection was not a normal everyday part of life. And so they would have been fearful. When God comes in full power to people, they fear. And that's the right response to say, oh, there's a holy God here. And, and Sproul writes about this in, in his book, uh, The Holiness of God. He talks about how every time when Jesus commanded the winds and wave to uh, cease, to be still, what happens? The men who were just a moment ago in very great fear over the weather, who are they in fear of now? They're, I'm in the presence of something great here, and uh, it's a fearful thing. So that would be a right response to have some fear there. So moving on then, I have a, another quote I'll read and then we'll continue on. Leon Morris said this, Those who saw this reacted as in the presence of God. Fear, which must be understood as awe, took hold of them. They glorified God, interestingly, not Jesus. They recognized the hand of God in what had happened and gave praise where it was due. But they did not salute Jesus, calling him a great prophet, or they, I'm sorry, they did salute Jesus, calling him a great prophet. This is an inadequate view of Jesus. But it probably represented the highest title the townsmen could give anyone. So in other words, they recognized God just raised this man from the dead. But they didn't attribute it to Jesus. They just thought maybe Jesus was this representative. He is a great prophet. And, and he, he's come to us, which represented to them God visiting them. And so we see this response of fear, which gives way to glory. And that would be our response, too, I think, if we ever saw something like that happen in real life. 
And so we look back at this passage and just amazement of what Christ has the power to do. Let's be reminded of that when we get worried about what's going on in our lives, when we get worried about what's going on in, in Palestine, when we get worried about what's going on in Yemen and Iran and, and Washington, D.C., and all of these places. Let us remember that Christ has the power to just speak and bring life to the dead, to bring to existence what did not exist. And so we can trust in him. He's, he's got everything under his control. There's not a molecule in the universe that's not under the control of God. And so whatever is happening in the world, we need to trust in that. So let's go back briefly and review these groups, groupings of two, and then we're going to close a little bit early and then uh, just ask you to kind of meditate on this passage the rest of the day. Think about the power of God. Realize the glory of God. And what did that all come out of from the very beginning I started talking about? Jesus' compassion. He had compassion. And out of his compassion, his power came. Now, we talked about this last week. I kind of closed with, with great power comes with great responsibility, and I changed it, right? But think about the power of Christ coming with great compassion, what he's able to do. Whatever power we have, some of us have very little. Some of you have more. If you combine that power you have, whatever it is, with compassion, you can do great good on this earth. So let's look at those two groupings of two again. Two processions. A procession of life and a procession of death. Anyone probably uh, that's at least an adult by now has been to some funeral or something where they've seen the pallbearers take the casket out. Maybe they've gone along to the cemetery. They've gone out and watched it lowered down. They had to leave the city, by the way, because in those days they were not allowed to bury in the city. They had to take it out a certain distance beyond the city walls. And so everyone had a procession going out. And uh, when you saw, if any of you saw some of the clips of the Queen of England when she died, um, and they had quite an enormous procession with her casket, right? We see in our country when someone who is considered a patriot dies, they may put the casket in the Capitol Rotunda for people to walk past it and, and honor that person. And you'll see military uh, pallbearers coming and, and carrying it, and there's a great procession. Uh, when JFK died, I've seen clips of it. I wasn't alive at the time, but there was quite a procession with his coffin. When Ronald Reagan died, they had a procession, a parade almost. This wouldn't have been a very happy procession. This was a very hard one. But this procession of death is coming out of the city and meets another procession. The procession of life. Those who are following the Prince of Life who has the ability to speak life into the dead and what happens. I'm guessing, it doesn't tell us what happened right after that, but I'm guessing that these two processions probably joined together and they all celebrated together uh, the life that Jesus offered. So which procession are you in? Are you in the procession of death without Christ? You're headed out of the city. You're headed to eternal death and eternal uh, conscious torment because you refuse to bow your knee to Christ and you refuse to confess and repent of your sins and turn from them. Or are you in the procession of life who has surrendered to Christ, 
who has said, Lord, I repent of my sins and I want to turn from them and I want to take the road of holiness. And we have two commands. Do not weep. The Bible tells us that he turns those who are mourning into people of joy. Uh, And that's what Christ does. So he will turn our weeping into joyful singing. And the other command is arise. You know, I've talked about it before, and I don't want to get too much into that because I've said enough words about it before. The the whole uh, idea where a um, a lot of people in ministry today will do this whole big pleading thing from the pulpit. Why aren't you coming forward? They're almost... You know, it's almost as if they need the people to come forward so they could be recognized that people came forward. And we don't see anywhere in Scripture this style of altar call where people are begged to come forward. What we see is commands. You're commanded to follow Christ. And when he commands, the one he commands cannot but respond to that command. Is he commanding you to arise? to accept Christ as your Savior so that you may join the caravan of life. And finally, we look at those two responses. Both of them proper responses when we encounter the holy. Fear and glory. If we encounter the holy God, whether it's the first time we hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and we, we realize our own sin in comparison to the holiness of Christ and the holiness of God, we should have a certain amount of fear. Every experience in Scripture where we're described, someone got in the, uh, in the presence of God, they had fear. But then that fear turns to glory, and we end up glorifying. If we follow God and we understand our surrender to him is necessary, I talked about this in a sermon recently. Um, Unconditional surrender is one of the requirements. We have to completely surrender to God, but once we do, we can glorify him. We say, glory be to God who saved me and raised my dead soul to life. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for this encouragement in your word this morning and a reminder of the power of Christ and the compassion of Christ May we live it out, Lord, as though we believe it. May we leave this building in confidence facing the world outside because we know the one who has this kind of power and has power, his power has been coupled with his compassion. Lord, encourage our souls. Help us to know it, believe it, live it by the empowerment of your Holy Spirit, who you promise in Scripture will give us the ability to live out this life of faith. We cling to that promise, Lord, and ask you to make it real in our lives, that we may truly glorify you. In Jesus' name, amen.